0: Last Sunday, we encountered the rich young ruler. And he was looking for assurance of what it means to have eternal life. But his love for money, his love for stuff, it got in the way. And by the way, we do post the sermons online if you want to follow through as we walk through the book of Mark. And if you're new here, that's what we're doing here. But let, but this week, we see an encounter between Jesus and the disciples, but let me begin by this way. I want to put a picture on the screen here. Um, some of you know this picture here. Let's see if we can. There we go. You know what that is? It's a Letterman's jacket. And let me date myself just a little bit. Um, I grew up back in the late '60s, early '70s, and the Letterman jacket was very important. And as you know that if you played on the varsity team, you were eligible to buy one of those jackets. And, and for us, as I grew up in Cokato and Das Cocado was the school that emerged in my senior year. But every time you lettered, you received a pin that you could put, a little bar actually, you could put on the jacket. And it was a symbol, again, that you've made the varsity team. And uh, then the game day was down there where we were at. The tradition was you'd wear that letterman's jacket on the day of the game. But it was many years ago, I don't know even how long ago, is that I came across a box, you might have been moving or whatever, and I came across this box of old trophies and awards and a bunch of those pins that I had earned in, in high school. Now the, the question is, what should you do with those? Um, so what I did is I created a trophy room so my kids could. No, no, I didn't, didn't do there. They actually went in the, into the dump. Okay, um, but just a, a little bit for, for myself. You know, I was. I grew up on a farm. I, I was strong. I developed physically pretty. Uh, Quickly, um, by the time I was in seventh, eighth grade, I was a pretty big kid, but I received my first letter in eighth grade, and one advantage is that I had an older brother that played sports, and for me, I used to be able to go with him when he played basketball and and baseball and football, and, and so I could hang around the older kids, and I think that helped me in terms of just obviously the athletic side of stuff. So I ended up playing four sports. I ended up earning 14 letters between 8th and 12th grade. So there was lots of pins on my jacket, you understand, as you walked around school. Um, But understand this. When you have success in anything, and I'm using sports here, but it could be other areas, it leads to people patting you on the back, doesn't it? See, that word success... Often has to do with our identity coming from accomplishment and some successful things that we do. Don't we have to admit that? The word identity. Just to begin with, let me just read you, I don't have it on the screen, when I look up at Webster's, the distinguishing character or personality of an individual, the condition or character as to who a person or what a thing is, the qualities, beliefs, etc. that distinguish or identify a person or thing. Now I want to be careful here because my goal is not to run down sports and activities here today. Because as I look at even sports, when I look back, it it taught great teamwork, it was good discipline, it was great exercise, but we have to stop and admit that it can shape our desires, our goals, our purpose in life, and ultimately our identity. Now another piece that I had to come to grips with in my own life is that uh, I had a very competitive spirit. And the goal was always to win, and the goal was to be successful in sports. And looking back, to be honest with you, I would say I was, I'm was i not all that thrilled as I look back at those high school years and college years. And I, one of the things that I would look back to, I believe that God allowed me to get hurt in college, so it kind of took all of that stuff away, but it forced me to look at what is important in my life. Now as I would fast forward a little few years I began to finally dig into the scriptures and began asking God what do you want? And and I began figuring some things out you know out in life and and I was beginning to c- grapple with God where do you want me to have my identity? God began to challenge me in that area even asking the question Ken, what's success for you? Now, that idea of identity and when you talk about success and doing well, I want to put another picture on the screen because I, I think this symbolizes some things as how the world believes. The man on top of the mountain didn't fall there, Vince Lombardi. You understand, it was a motivational thing that he spoke, and matter of fact, remember the other saying, maybe the most famous saying of Vince Lombardi, winning isn't everything, it is, you know, some of you know that saying. <laughs> See, the word success, status, finishing number one, we don't always remind ourselves that they are deeply intertwined and with the idea of discipleship and following Jesus. And I think what we fail to realize at times is that those words like success and being on top of the mountain, they are deeply connected to the flesh and the old nature. And by the way, as a parent, I've been a parent and having grandkids and and this whole area, I I think we want to kind of ignore that as parents, that sometimes the stuff can be so intertwined with the flesh, and we want to go, la, 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 don't let me hear that. Listen, the default system of life pulls one to be on top of the mountain. It's a reality of this world that's deeply connected, really, to the original, that first sin of all of creation. And it's so ingrained that, that well, remember, remember playing King on the Hill? Especially in the wintertime was the best. You'd get a big snowbank, you know, where they'd push it together, and you'd go up there and see who could stay on top of that snowbank the longest And I'd still like to play that today, but I know I would get hurt at my age, so that's a reality. I'd enjoy it. But see, life oftentimes is focused on being on top of that mountain. Let me jump into the text today. We're going to dig our way through these passages. Verse 32, chapter 10. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem was up, okay? With Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. I want to stop there a second. I got to point out a couple things. First, it wasn't customary for Jesus to lead out front, he was often he would stay with his disciples and talk along the journey. But the second, you'll notice there was people that were following him. Now, I don't know if you realize this, Jesus had a bunch of groupies. Okay, that that they were following him. There's another group of people and it says that they were afraid. And you go, okay, what is that all about? Now, we know from the context, and Mark really doesn't tell us, but we have to go to the other Gospels, but it reveals to us that this was right after Lazarus had been resurrected. And that event exploded the hostility of the religious leaders of that day. People sent word to the religious leaders of this great event and they were out to get them. So Jesus withdrew for just a few days, but now he's back on the march and he's going to Jerusalem where the leaders are at. And this group, I'm convinced, they would have understood that the potential for a great clash between the religious elite and Jesus. See, Jesus understood here. He was walking toward the cross. This was very late in his ministry. And this was coming close to where he was going to fulfill his mission. And I believe even walking out in front like this, I think Jesus was filled with emotion. It's speculation a bit, I understand that. But I think there was an intensity and a weight that was beginning to come over him where he felt his mission and the weight of that. Let me keep going. And again, he took the twelve aside, so he pulls the others closer to him, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him, condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. See, what he's doing here is he's revealing in a very clear way what is going to happen to him as he goes to Jerusalem. Now this is the third time that he has really talked in a direct way, told the disciples what's going to take place. Earlier in Mark chapter 8, it was just kind of a bare bones announcement. But then we come to chapter 9. He adds a piece and says, somebody is going to betray me. And now here in 10, he begins to give a picture of it using words like mocking and he's going to be whipped and scourged and he's going to die. It's a brutal death. You understand? That's what he's revealing here to his disciples. But think of the courage of Jesus at this point. Knowing the time is coming. He knows that the crucifixion is going to take place. He's going to hang on the cross. And then he develops, he goes into this conversation with these men and the intensity of that moment of hearing them hearing what's going to happen to him. Now, I I think there's a bit of a tension here with the disciples, by the way, because on one hand, they know he's the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And on the other hand was death. And they're beginning to realize that. And he asked the question, the king of the Jews and death, how do those two things go together? They really don't in their mind. So I think there was some element of confusion yet with them of going, how does the king, he's going he's to, and then death, why do they come together? But I think it showed their love for Jesus even though they couldn't understand But notice that it takes a turn in the story. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the uh, baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, did you just catch the awkwardness of this moment? He had just stated the brutality of going to the cross what was going to happen to him. And James and John try to sneak him away a bit. And Jesus... Okay, Jesus. You just told us about the brutality, but Jesus, after the resurrection, when you reveal your kingship to this world and to all the rulers, can we be the ones that sit on the right and the left? Can we sit by your throne? Do you understand... Why that's that so awkward at this point? This is like a mom and dad sitting down with a couple of kids. And mom and dad reveal to those two kids that, you know what, guys, in a month, we're going to be dead. We're going to be gone. And the immediate response of these two kids would be this, Dad, can I have the house? Can I have the boat and the car? You understand that kind of tension here see something really isn't right with this picture now let me zero in on the main point if you got your notes and you're following along in the outline I said it this way the key point for the day following Jesus calls us to a heart of service instead of the desire to be served and to be great This is what he's instilling into his disciples. But see, the desire to be great, the desire to have people admire you, to people that would serve you, having the power to influence other people. See, for these two disciples, the flesh had kicked in full bore. They understood that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were thinking that they could get something from him. See, I believe that they thought that Jesus was going to send some kind of a real throne after he was resurrected and they would get to sit in the places of honor. He was going to win the battle and then sit on that throne and James and John could be there. But you recognize as well, James and John already had tasted of some privilege in their lives. Remember, they had actually gone up to a mountain already. They had been there at the transfiguration. So there was some privilege that they already had encountered with as they spent time with Jesus. So I think they viewed themselves as important. But they wanted to make sure that they had the the seats of privilege. Now, Peter, who was up on that mountain, they wanted to ignore him, okay? But, But let me give you some more context here of this. See, Matthew tells this story as well, but in the Gospel of Matthew, he reveals that it was not first James and John who asked this question. It was their mother, Salome. Now, here's probably what happened Salome came out of that group that was following Jesus, grabbed her two sons with her, and go up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need a favor. I need a favor could you have my boys sit on the left and the right? You know, this would have been a great Mother's Day sermon, wouldn't it? (laughs) A mother's ambition for your children, wanting your children to be great. (laughs) No, probably not. That probably wouldn't work, But here's a mom, Salome. Jesus, I know my sons, and they are good boys. I'm proud of my sons for all they've accomplished. They've been following you. But... Let me. Do you catch the, her attitude? Now, now here's where I got to stop and be fair just for a moment because I think we think ambition is always bad, and I want to just comment on that reminder here, just to interject this: ambition is not wrong unless it's misplaced ambition, and it was in this case. See, following though for three years for these guys, they were hearing the greatest teacher in all of history and it still didn't get rid of their quest for earthly power and glory and fame and being on top of the mountain. But I got to point out, you see mom's identity here. Where she's coming from here was a mom that was more concerned about the ambitions of her boys in terms of being well-known in the right place. But what was missing in her ambition was God's fame. Legitimate ambition of being to have boys about the kingdom of God. You know, I, I still think back to my life and I'm not sure that as I came into junior high and high school, um, no one sat down with me and asked this question, Ken, where is your identity coming from? What does it mean, Ken, to be on top of the mountain? You know, I I think back, I was trying to think back here this week, and did anybody sit down with me and say, Ken, would you be willing to use sports for the kingdom of God and his glory? I'm not sure anyone made that statement to me. They might have, but I just didn't remember it. See, I I wish someone would have sat down with me to tell me how sports and extracurricular activities can actually feed the flesh. It feels one's wrong identity. I I wish I would have had a different focus. I, I wish somebody would have come to me and said, Ken, when you play ball in college, would you be willing to look at your teammates and present them complete in Christ? I don't think anybody told me that. And I grew up in a church just like this. You know, I wish that weren't true. You know, as I sat in class, I wish somebody would have pushed me harder to go, Ken, would you look at your, your, your mates around you that are sitting there, and would you look at them and say, how can you be on mission to give them Jesus? I'm not sure that that happened to me. Now, I realize those things and all those activities are not simple. But see there can be ambition and great joy in activities and the ambition to do, do something good but the f- platform must be the kingdom of God. Parents this apply this for you Here a parent that had taught her sons something wrong about greatness. And parents, we have to admit that our kids' activities and grades and performances feeds into our ego as as parents as well, and sometimes not in a healthy way. Now again, I'm not saying that all those activities are bad. I I just think they're misplaced at times. But from this passage, I, I look and go, our kids must have a different purpose than just winning and building into their identity. But you know, it's more than just sports, it's grades, it's it's success, it's jobs, it's in the future. We can put all of those things under this principle. See, Jesus is fundamentally telling these guys, you are doing and seeking greatness just like the pagans do it. That's fundamentally what Jesus was saying. That's harsh. But, but here, as I was pondering this, I go... This is really good news for us in this text. And it's actually quite refreshing. Do you realize the honesty of the scriptures here? Mark's aim is not to to just lift up these great men, he shows the flaws in these guys. God was not done with these men, they weren't spiritual giants. They were ordinary men. Matter of fact, I think it was less than ordinary. Do you realize the beauty here, though? That, that he takes these men, plain fishermen and just everyday men, and God says, I'm going to change the world through you. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, I went to the True Hope uh, gathering with uh, the with, uh, uh, master's um, singers there. And he pointed out something about the Pharisees. So if you were there, I don't know if you remember that, but I want to take it a bit farther. I don't know if you realize for the Pharisees that when they were young, the Pharisees they were selected actually started at a very young age, at age 5 and 6. They would go to the synagogue, and they were taught in the synagogue starting at age 6, and up through 12 would be kind of the graduation there, and, and that would be the bar mitzvah, if you know, but understand by age 12, if they were in the right group, that they would have memorized the first four books of the Old Testament by age 12. And if they were really sharp, they matter of fact, maybe the best of the best of that group, what they would take and keep going in their training with them, and by the age of 15, and this was called the Bet Midrash level, and they would have had... At about many of them at this point would have memorized the whole Old Testament by age 15. And then for the cream of the crop, they would take some out of that group starting at age 15 and they would begin actually on this group is that you would have to be selected by a rabbi. And that you would shadow that rabbi and follow him around. He would become the teacher, the trainer. And that was from 15 to about 30. And at that point, if you cut the mustard, you, you understand then you would become a rabbi and a leader. These people, these, some of these leaders knew the entire Old Testament by heart. Now, just to pique your interest, how does that fit with hiding God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him? Another sermon sometime, okay? (laughs) But they had memorized the scriptures, and folks, over in hundreds of examples of the Messiah, promised Messiah coming, and he was standing right there, he was there, and they didn't recognize him. But catch this, Jesus didn't invite those kind of guys to be his followers. He didn't invite the best of the best. He didn't invite the winners of the National Bible Quizzing Team. These men couldn't even qualify for the junior varsity. They played ball in the streets. They didn't have a gym to play in. But Let's keep going. Notice how Jesus responds. Look at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, "Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with?" Now, the picture here, it's customary that a king would take the cups and hand those out. And this is a metaphor, the experience really that this is what God is handing out to people. Psalm 75:8, "The hand of the Lord, there is a cup he's talking about the fate and the store what's stored up for the wicked and the disobedient. Isaiah 51.17 At the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. See, the cup is is the, the experiences that God has handed out to people. And in this particular case, it meant the cross. Persecution. Now that word baptism as well, I don't know if you know the roots of it, but it actually is a nautical term. It goes back to the ships where a ship is wrecked and it's submerged at that point. Now, Psalm 42.7 says this, All the waves and the breakers have swept over me. And, and so functionally he's saying this, Guys, can you, can you bear to go through the terrible experience which I'm going to go through? Can you face being submerged in hatred and pain and death that I have to go through? See, he was telling these two men that without the cross there never will be a crown. See, the standard of greatness in the kingdom is the reality of the cross. See, I have kids, I have grandkids. We want our kids to be great, but are we teaching that greatness comes by taking up one's cross? And you go, what does that mean? Parents, there's a lunch conversation for your, with your kids. What does it mean to be great? James was beheaded as a result of this. Keep going. Look at verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John, and Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this request causes chaos. They hear about it. The other guys tend to hear about it. And this was a controversy that this isn't the first time. Who was the greatest here? And this would have been a moment where this whole group could have blown up. But Jesus jumps into it. He addresses it immediately. But do you catch what he's saying? That as a disciple, living in the kingdom of God, greatness isn't defined by how many letters you earn in a sport. It's not defined how someone will serve you or what position or how much money. It's defined by how much we are willing to serve the kingdom. Understand, he's flipped it upside down. Greatness for a follower of Christ is about humble service, not about giving commands and being served. And by the way, I think oftentimes this service even means serving without being seen and known and even appreciated. And it becomes where we become a slave to others, it says. But you think of our society today When we look at greatness out there in the world, it's limousines, it's a red carpet, it's the person who's cutting down the nets. Folks, the kingdom is inverted. You must become a servant, a bond slave, and serve the master. Now look at 45 again. He points to his modeling like this, and then he says this in 45, for even the Son of Man came to serve and give his life for a ransom to many. And this is absolutely so foundational in this issue. And it's really astounding. And it's so contrary to the world's way. He came to earth to meet our needs. And do you catch the nature of a serving? Even in service, I think when we say we serve God, folks, it isn't about his needs god doesn't lack anything serving doesn't shore up some deficiencies on god's part god has no needs and yet we're called to serve him but when we serve god so it isn't what he lacks but it is what why to it's for other people for others it's through us it's even working in us i came across a verse this week in my study, that just it really did floor me just looking at this. The context is in Luke 12. The context is a rich young fool, and he ends up with seek treasures in heaven. But look how it reads here 34 for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But here's a warning looking ahead, disciples be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert. And when he comes, truly I say to you, and look what it says here, that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and this is Jesus, and will come up and wait on them. Do you understand the the wedding feast in Revelation out there, and all of a sudden he's saying this, is that when I come, I'm going to gird up my loins, I'm going to get ready, and I'm going to serve you. It, It was just kind of this moment where I go, incredible. Him coming back in his glory, and he still serves us. Isn't that stunning, really? Now, it doesn't mean that we sit around and do anything and wait for him to come back. We're to work hard. But our ambition needs to be directed for the king, toward the kingdom of God. But in serving, see, he was a ransom. He served us by paying the penalty for our sins. He didn't serve us so we would die well. He didn't serve us to inspire us to set us free because he did set us free to serve. It wasn't just an inspiration thing. He literally gave us now the ability to serve. Let me just fill in those blanks real quick. How do we cultivate a spirit of servanthood and true greatness? And I think the first one is this we must train ourselves away from entitlement, from entitlement. And it's this, we stop demanding that it's about our needs. And we get after meeting other people's needs. Serving is about the greater good of the other. Entitlement is about what I deserve. Even that I deserve to be recognized. But the reality is at times within the church, it's about our needs. My desires, my wishes. See, entitlement says that my needs are most important and has little to do with the kingdom of God. Number two, another one we must get over that serving is going to cost time, money, and it's going to be inconvenient. You know, and, and this one, I confess this still. You know, I look at my schedule and go, but that's going to be inconvenient. I got this, this, too much. With when the body of Christ. You know, I I would still believe that the 80-20 rule still exists in a church. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And what would happen if a church unleashed all of those who claim to be disciples of Jesus into serving one another? What would that look like? See, 44, whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. Just imagine... If Jesus' attitude would have been different, Father, I'm not sure that, well, you know what, Father, maybe there's somebody else that could serve. Or what if he said this, Father, you know what, I'm just a little bit busy to go to the cross now? You know, what kind of an attitude would that be? Let me give you another one, three though. We must see people the way Jesus sees people. I, I think the last to last week, the rich young ruler, and it says that Jesus loved him. He loved him. But when we walk in this world, when you see a Muslim, do you see someone to love or someone to disdain? When you looked at the pictures of that tragedy in Orlando, did we first come across in our mind that? God's judgment. But understand this, Jesus died for them. Do we see people that they're made in the image of God and that Jesus died for them? See, when one doesn't see the spiritual needs of people, it's going to flip to entitlement almost automatically. Do we catch that? Do we see people like Jesus did? Number four, the last one, maybe the most important. We need to open our eyes to see what Jesus did for us. That last song we sung really fit here. Look at verse 45. And even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is easy to forget that Jesus, what he did for us, it was a response because he loved us. But do we grasp the great servanthood of God by dying on the cross for us and he set us free to serve? Do we get this? If we don't get this, we really don't understand grace. Listen, Jesus is serving us, and the only thing that we deserve is hell. Do you realize that's the only entitlement we really have? is hell. And do you catch the great love of Jesus at this point, though? He wasn't done with these guys, and hes so I, I, I see him not yelling at him. I think he was gentle with them. I think he was caring, but he looks at them and he guys, I want you to flip it over. I want you to not be like the world. I want you to live differently in response to what I have done for you. I'm going to the cross, but it's to serve you. See, when people are bent on having church and others serve them, I think what's happened is they have forgot the reality of verse 45 here. They forgot that Jesus has died for them, and the only thing that they were, re- were really entitled to is hell. Folks, Jesus died for us because he loves us. And because of that, he wants us to serve, to serve one another. If you're approached this fall and saying, can we help? I would encourage you to honestly just get on your knees and say, God, what do you desire from me for serving? I think you should be saying yes, unless God tells you no. He died for us. Flip the kingdom over this week. Serve some people around you. Let's stand and pray.